Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. Ah! It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, we can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here. Travis Morningstar is going to be with me as well. Hello, Travis. Hey. Hey, Travis. All right, Marcus Parks is busy working on Knights of the Solar Templar Part 2, which is going to be very exciting. We have a lot of stuff to get to today. A little bit later on in the episode, I have an interview with Rachel Monroe. She profiled Damian Eccles for the New York Times and is a contributor to The New Yorker. So that'll be a very fun interview. Mm. Wouldn't you say, Travis? It was great. Thank you. All right. (laughs) I want to talk about a couple of things today. First, we have a new climate report that came out. Donald Trump doesn't believe it. Uh, when it comes to global warming and its effect on the United States and the world abroad. Uh, there are a couple of different uh, key points to it that we'll go through. Also, uh, there is a border crisis going on. The uh, Army, U.S. military, has taken action, non-lethal action, but nonetheless aggressive action. They sent a bunch of, uh, what do you call it, tear gas, and uh, they, they tear gassed a bunch of kids. So that's horrible. Cool um, that seems to be that seems to be the prerogative of this administration. As a matter of fact, Donald Trump is quoted via Twitter, which is nauseating to say. Um, he says Mexico should move the flag waving migrants, many of whom are stone cold criminals, back to their countries. And of course, we know these are people who are fleeing war torn countries, places that are devastated by drug lords and a in uh, violence so these are not the criminals the criminals are the ones that they are fleeing from and there is a um set of standards there's a practice here where people come and seek refugee status they get in line uh, they go and they talk to folks uh, they are processed those people weren't even allowed to get in line this past week without the military intervening. Mexico has detained a few people. There were some people, uh, there were some bad actors that were throwing projectiles, rocks, and bottles in comparison to the arsenal that we have. Not exactly the most aggressive, um, but nonetheless, Mexico did end up detaining uh, around 20 or 30 individuals, and they have said that they will be deporting those people back to their home countries. So Mexico is uh, taking care of some of the more violent people that are um, uh, more aggressive when it comes to our southern border. Well, I mean, the whole thing started out as a peaceful protest. Right. And the only the only reason it became violent, like you said, they started throwing rocks, is because some people started to go underneath the gates mm-hmm. uh, through a river, through a ravine, mm-hmm. 
And uh, that's when they started tear gassing children right. and women. And that's when rocks were thrown. So this is where, this is just classic escalation. This but is what we do in this country. It happens all the time with Trump law enforcement. created this bottleneck. He, yes. Asylum is only now able to go at, is, asylum is only now possible through these ports of entry like um, San Ysidro, um, mm-hmm. which are far and few between. You know, there's thousands of miles of border gates. Right. And uh, at these processing centers, they're, they're lowering the number of people who can be processed through asylum. So like these, pl- these places only hold 300 people at a time, these centers, and they're only allowing 40 people to be processed a day. So you have people standing out there for hours, for days and right. weeks, mm-hmm. and now you have these migrants coming to basically a bottleneck created by Trump's new measures. So it looks like most of the immigrants are from Honduras, and the number now is around 8,000. So as Travis was just explaining, uh, wonderfully, I thought, um, that's exactly what's happening right now. Less... Um, availability in these centers uh, they're creating this chaos on the border and there is a system this is nothing new people have been coming over our southern border for a long long time and uh, administrations have handled this in different more uh, productive ways so donald trump he just wants to send the military down there he did some of the military has since come back um but nonetheless i do think that this is a man-made crisis a trump administration created crisis and probably for political gain as we saw what happened when he sent the military down uh, that was around 72 million dollars was spent on that exercise after the election those people came back so this is uh, par for the course it's disgusting and it's sad and there's a lot of people who are like well uh, the news media isn't covering this the right way right they're like they're just showing the children they're just showing the women and the children. Well, that doesn't make them not real. And uh, they're showing, like, what that is real. It that is, is that, there's no, like, just because you don't like the image, you can't be like, well, there's other bad people there, too. Or it's like, it doesn't matter. There's still children being tear gassed. It's interesting how, like, steeped in post truth we are because we have one singular incident, one event in this one place near Tijuana. And we have different angles from it. We have a bird's eye view of it that makes it look like an invasion. And then you have on the ground photos of women and children getting tear gassed. And people just take it in any direction they want. MS-13 is recruiting very young. You know, they're going for the toddlers now. <laughs> the uniform for MS-13 is very strange. The Frozen, the Disney Frozen t-shirt. I know, I, I know. They're trying, to soft, they're trying to get a softer <laughs> image. I get it. You can hold a lot of weaponry in lunch boxes and brown paper bags, school boxes, backpacks. Um, Kirsten Nielsen, who's probably on her way out, uh, currently the head of uh, Homeland Security, uh, she's getting a lot of heat for this as well. There, There's no love lost between her and Donald Trump. I'm not sure exactly what happened in the drama, drama-filled uh, White House between those two, but it looks like she's going to be on the way out anytime soon. So we'll continue to watch what's going on on the border. It's absolutely egregious. It's horrible. And again, these are people that can greatly contribute uh, to our economy if we just have a path to citizenship or at the very least a path to a work visa Uh, we need these people in our agriculture in our um you know as i talked about in two episodes ago if you look at construction if you look at um uh what do you call these things like maid services what do you what's the proper name for that sort of service industry yeah Yeah, hospitality service industries we need these people uh, they're not the criminals. The criminals are who they're fleeing from. As we've talked about before, too, 2016, the only country that saw more deaths was Syria. 
uh, the second was Mexico, and that's because of the cartels, because of the gangs, and because of all the violence. By the way, uh, these cartels are benefiting greatly from our opioid epidemic. These are horrible people, but again, it's not the migrants uh, that are the perpetrators of these horrendous crimes, because if you're a criminal, Mexico's a hell of a place to be. If you're a drug dealer and you're in Honduras, why the hell would you leave? It's Mecca. It's perfect. It's the place to hang out. So nasty stuff. And uh, obviously, for any other administration, you would say this is bad optics. Trump seems to love it. He's just like, this is what I wanted. This is perfect. This is making it great again. It totally plays into his, this is an invasion thing. You get the right angle. The right camera angle makes it look exactly how he's portraying it. But now, of course, there is going to be some pushback for Trump. Uh, There are some people who are claiming, like, this is interesting. So this comes in from uh, Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Kevin McHalen. McHalen. Look at that guy. Uh, Now, he says there were 69 migrants who crossed the border. They were arrested on the California side. All right. That's pretty par for the course. He said the Border Patrol's policy allows agents to use tear gas and other non-lethal methods, but noted the situation was resolved without serious injury. Still, the incident will be reviewed. He He goes on to say, as the events unfolded, quick, decisive, effective action prevented an extremely dangerous situation. Again, I would argue that they escalated the situation. Uh, Now, one person here, this is according to Rodney Scott. He's the chief border agent in San Diego. He talks about how these were not people seeking asylum and suggested that the children uh, that were seen in some of the pictures were, um, quote, they they were children of grabbers. The pictures of the kids... We're, we're not pictures with them and their parents. They, they claim that these were grabbers, people grabbing the kids and then running up to the border, which, again, I, I, you know, you, you got to have a grain of salt with all this stuff. He says, why, why is a parent running up into an area where they know the tear gas is forming and it's going to be formed as they're running up with a child? That's what Donald Trump said to reporters. And in some cases, you know, they're not the parents. These are people, they call them quote-unquote grabbers, interesting word grabbers. for Trump to be using. Fraggle Rock. <laughs> they grab what? a child because they think they're going to have a certain status by having a child. And again, uh, what makes more sense? Uh, it's actually women and children who are fleeing, or it's a series of grabbers who want nothing more than to take on a child. You know, it's like it's like a fun 80s uh, comedy. Grabbers, trimmers, wh- who knows it. what's going on at the at these borders. So that's the excuse from the Trump administration is that these are not kids and their parents. It's kids and their grabbers. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. So hopefully. Swiper the Fox made, a, <sighs> made an appearance at, at the, uh, the Tijuana Center. You know, I know people do a lot of things to get over, you know, into this country. I understand. But if, you know, this is just, if you are, someone who is going to be coming into this country illegally for nefarious means, this is one of the most heavily guarded places to come. Like you, you're like El Chapo in his tunnels. You can go around. You can come in through different ports. Like this was, if you are someone who really wants to come and do something horrible, they would not come through this way. San Isidro is the most trafficked uh, immigration route in the Western Hemisphere. So it's, a, and it's also the most monitored. people a year go through this it's so yeah it's it's a it's not like a it's not a crack in the wall right exactly interesting so that is the border patrol that fired on uh the migrants and again the military is really for all intents and purposes no longer there there was a 72 million dollar publicity stunt for the elections and uh that is where donald trump is at right now who knows what he's gonna do uh going forward all right let's talk a little bit more here i want to talk well speaking of immigration You know, I don't really mention this stuff too often because I don't like to 
get down and I don't like to, you know, even discuss some of these people. But uh, what happened this week was interesting regarding this group called uh, the Proud Boys. Yes. Now, you heard about this group, Travis? Oh, I, I, yeah, this is a... Are you a, a card-carrying member or... No, well, I I have never I've never sworn my allegiance to any. Sh- what is it? The chauvinist West. I think it's the chauvinist. It's the I don't even know. There's there are chauvinist male group. I've I, never listed any. I've never listed five serial. Ah uh, uh, yes, boxes that, in a row under duress. If you do want to have a little bit of fun, watch the beaten ceremony for to become a proud boy. You got to list five serials and then. These pasty ass dudes punch you kind of, but you know Snap, they're more crackle used- and pop, yeah, uh, beat the shit out of you. They're more used to playing video games than actually doing anything physical. So they're it's quite humorous the beatings. Yeah, the proud the proud boys are basically uh, like a racist frat, right? Like a they, yes, like well, the kappa 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 kkk. You know, so the FBI they called them an extremist group. So now they're officially on this list of extremist groups, and because of that, Gavin McInnes, who is someone that I know. Uh, their founder, not their leader, according to him, but their founder, uh, he has stepped down as being their, what he really is, their leader. He has stepped down. And it was a humorous 30-minute spiel um, because, of course, now some of his members were arrested after this brawl in NYU. And uh, and they, they're seeking, I mean, they're looking at some pretty significant time. And, of course, now that it's labeled an extremist group, you can get added charges and added um, length to your sentence. So Gavin McGinnis is no longer a part of the Proud Boys. And, I, you know, I, I know I did not realize how horrible Gavin was until they went on his show. And uh, and then it's always like really enlightening because, of course, Gavin is talking about how America isn't a nation of immigrants. He's talking about how like this is it's a white country, all this shit. And Gavin just goes on, goes on and on, anti-immigrant rant after anti-immigrant uh, anti-immigrant rant. And I'm looking at the guy and be like, dude. You're fucking Canadian. Like, what is going on? Like, yeah. you are an immigrant. You are the you are the uh, antithesis of everything that you're talking about. This country, of course, it's welcome to immigrants. But I just wanted to say this in the context of don't like be careful who you're following. Be careful like what groups you decide to join. Just be careful who you put your trust in because I guarantee you, as soon as uh, you know, as soon as times get tough, they're gonna you know hightail it out of there because they're weak and uh, that's their entire thing this is why he had to go and really basically Gavin I mean his group is people I mean our friend Holden knew someone who was in a sketch group of his or uh, that was in a sketch class that he was teaching and he went over uh, to join the Proud Boys he was an improviser I mean the guy wanted to be a comedian but he didn't think it was tough enough or or uh, it was like too PC or something so he got a lot of young influential kids uh, or easily influenced kids, not influential. I guess influential somewhat. But he got easily influenced kids to follow him, and they all really trusted him. And now, of course, again, when the going gets tough, he just gets out of there. So anyway, I just want to say be careful who you follow because these people are not going to back you up. Same thing with Trump, you know, when he's talking to his reporters or when he's talking to his supporters, rather, about beating up reporters. If you beat up a reporter, dude, he is not helping you. <laughs> like, there is no, like, do not follow these people. Because when it, they don't care, they don't give a shit, they don't give a fuck if you go to prison forever, they don't give a fuck what happens to you, they only care about themselves, and that's why they're that's, they're just propping up their own ego, and you're just a, a little um, piece of, uh, you know, a, a piece of, you're a support beam for their e- egotistical home. And the thing with Proud Boys is, Gav, what Gavin does is he does this kind of rhetorical trick where he'll say, 
he'll position uh, Islam as being um, oppressive to women and right. all this stuff. And then he'll say, you know, we're actually against that and sort of in his own way is sort of claiming a progressive stance while mixing in actual hateful... Uh, it's a male chauvinist club. Yeah. I mean, so, the hypocrisy so basically is... Basically, he's trying to sort of establish some sort of mainstream acceptability in this right. in this hate group. And so people like UCB <laughs> improv kids right. think that some parts of his philosophy uh, they can get they can actually uh, gel with right it, it's 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 a and he and Gavin himself he always sort of says like you know we're not with neo Nazis we're not with the alt right he explicitly tries well, he tries right. to separate himself because it makes it more appealing to the mainstream I don't like to I I'm, I'm not a hot gas guy but uh, in the context here. Gavin is a white supremacist. I, I went out for drinks with him one time after I did his show. Um, and again, I mean, I'm not making it. It was what it was. I just did not know. You know, it's hard to know who people are. Um, so um, went out for a drink and he went through the entire uh, the racial hierarchy of intelligence. And it was the N word was said quite a bit. It was yeah. like one of those rap songs, Travis. Yeah. Um, but of course, he is not a rapper. And at that moment, I was like, it was just, it was fascinating. At some point, you you break out of the conversation and you're just like, I'm just going to, this is going to be a sociological study of like how, what is going on? And um, it's just hard to believe that anyone would listen to him because I'm sure he had very racially motivated uh, conversations with a lot of his members. Um, it's difficult for anyone, for me to think anyone would actually be like, this is the guy. This is my, this is my, this is the dude I'm going to follow. But obviously a lot of, uh, again, easily influenced, lonely, lost kids did think that this was the guy uh, to follow. So he is not a good person. Uh, you know, he's got, I don't want to go into two, but he was a regular on Red Eye when I was producing there. Yeah. And, um, you know, there was one time he came in and, you know, it is what it is. Everyone's got their problems and I'm not trying to like malign anyone. But anyway, he just absolutely hammered, covered in blood. And uh, for some reason, and I was filling in for him on that show um, because he didn't show up, so I was going to fill in. And uh, for some reason, they still put him on air. He showed up just for the C block, which is towards the end of the show. And he just showed up, and he was covered, like literally his hair was covered in blood. <laughs> and then the night before, he got into a car accident, then he got, then he got into a bike accident. He was still hammered. And, uh, you know, I don't know how they put him on air. That was really bizarre. I thought he should... Maybe tonight's not the night for the television, you know. Um, but it was just another indication, you know, and, uh, of the just the kind of personality he is and just who he is as a person. I mean, everyone gets hammered. That's not a problem. But um, the the hairstylists were, were quite upset that they had to do style demands hair, literally <laughs> uh, pulling out hair and blood, pulling out blood. Um, so, you know, he's a little unhinged. He's a little off the uh, off the uh, deep end there. So uh, it was just sad to see this Proud Boys thing, which I do think started out as a bit of a lark, uh, maybe a little tongue-in-cheek. But then it got very serious well, in, in real his, quick. In his own words, Gavin McInnes says, he doesn't hate min minorities. Right. He hates white liberals who don't accept the fact that mini minorities are inferior to the white race. He's a Canadian. That is what the most is going on over there? Logic to say that I'm a fucking just say it. I'm a white supremacist. Honestly, yeah. He and Richard Spencer and this whole slowly uh, evaporating group of morons. Um, their time is they 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 peaked uh, with with Yellow Bastard. You know, they peaked with Trump, and and now it's it's all gonna hopefully um, dissipate a little bit because I don't. 
you know, again. So I don't want to sit here and like, you know, if you're a proud boy uh, and you're listening or whatever, but you don't have to be one, you know, it's okay. You can just like change. Don't be part of these groups. I mean, you just, you can't try, as we talk about cults all the time on last pod, it's like the leaders are never care about you. They will never all, they will only protect themselves. And that's exactly what Gavin did. As soon as the FBI was like, you're in trouble, you're an extremist group. He just cut and run, and he says it's because he doesn't want the people to be associated, uh, the, the folks that are in uh, looking at significant time, again, these kids, or, you know, young adults. I don't want to say kids. I'm just, I'm 37, okay? Not everyone has my wisdom of, of a 37-year-old. Well, it, it means uh, 30-year-olds that are putting on MAGA hats and then going around calling themselves Proud Boys. It, yeah. It, it, these aren't kids. These no, are like yeah, Maybe they're not men. kids. Maybe I'm giving them too much. Grown men, sure. Yep. Um, but the, the, the ones looking at significant time for the NYU brawl, which is just so stupid. Um, he says that he's doing it so that they don't get more time added. So now there's no association well, yeah, with him. And it's making just, up a, an excuse saying that, um, by disassociating himself, those people will get, uh, lighter sentences, which right. is not a thing. No, it's not. And he's just obviously, I don't even freaking know. I can't. You know, all, they're all around these uh, these people, these little these little political cults that pop up, and they seem to be popping up more and more. And uh, anyway, if you're in that group, just get out of it, man, because it's it's cooler to just be alone. I don't even know. I never understood the group mentality. Don't, I don't. That's why I liked wrestling in high school because I did not like to play basketball and I did not like to play football. God, I can't be dealing with all these other people. I just want if I'm going to lose, I just want to lose myself without having to blame and and, and take all the rewards exactly. for winning too. Be your own person. Don't get radicalized by this guy. Oh, can you imagine following his that ass cheeks on his fucking web stream? Yeah, show. I know it's. I know. When you think of the perfect gift, you probably don't think of an electric toothbrush. But the Quip electric toothbrush is one of the most gift-guided gifts of the season, and here's why. It's perfect for everyone with a mouth, and it's something they'll use twice every day. Quip makes holiday travels clean and easy with a multi-use cover that mounts to mirrors and unmounts to slide over the bristles for on-the-go brushing. Quip doesn't require a clunky charger and runs for three months on a single charge. Quip is the gift that keeps refreshing, with brush heads automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. And you can give the gift of healthy teeth all year with prepaid refills for a year to make sure they're never using old, worn-out, or ineffective bristles. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association and has thousands of verified five-star reviews. Seriously, guys, I've been taking my Quip everywhere I go, and it's still running strong on its first charge. I love the multi-use cover and how easy it is to throw it into my carry-on and go. No tangled wires or chargers. And sure, the Quip is practical and gives you a good deep clean, but it also looks beautiful and stylish and is sure to be a great gift to give to just about anyone in your life. That's why I love Quip and why they have over 5,000 verified five-star reviews. Quip looks like a big-ticket tech gift with a stocking stuffer price starting at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash top hat right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush, but you don't have to tell your gifty that. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash top hat. 
All right. Well, moving on. Let's talk a little bit before we get to our interview with Rachel Monroe. Uh, global warming is now affecting the United States more than ever before, as we just saw with the campfire fires. I mean, this uh, California, apparently that's contained now, but they're still working on it. I guess some of the roots and uh, uh, underground fires still exist. It's horrifying that what happened horrifying. in California, what is happening in California. So this report just came out. And uh, it's the U.S. climate assessment. Donald Trump, again, has said that he just doesn't. It's so easy just not to like, be like, don't believe it. It just makes everything so much easier when you don't believe anything. So then you don't have to do anything. So, uh, and by the way, if Donald Trump was in like freshman year of high school, he would just fail science class. He would just be like, the teacher The teacher would be like, you can't just not believe it. You got to take the test. Well, I was thinking like there's a difference between what Trump does, like what a difference between lying and what Trump does, which is, I think, technically bullshitting, which is just sort sure. of like a willful disregard. Like there's lying, like right. spinning something. And then what Trump does, which, he, which is what he did here. I don't believe it. I don't, don't care. Don't and believe I disregard it. it completely. All right. Well, the gist of this now, this is volume two of the latest national climate assessment it's around 1600 pages so it's a pretty uh it's a pretty thick book there pretty thick manual here pretty thick article um the scientific report which comes out uh, nearly every four years as mandated by congress was produced by 13 federal agencies and released by the trump administration which makes it so interesting that he denies it it was released by his administration technically all right, so what are some of the key takeaways here? One of the key takeaways is predicted impacts have materialized. Uh, more and more of the predicted impacts of global warming are now becoming a reality. For instance, the 2014 assessment forecast that coastal cities would see more flooding in the coming years as sea levels rose, that's no longer theoretical. Scientists have now documented a record number of quote-unquote nuisance flooding events during high tides in cities like Miami and Charleston, South Carolina. This is according to the report. It says high tide flooding is now posing daily risks to businesses, neighborhoods, infrastructure, transportation, and ecosystems in the South East. As the oceans have warmed, disruptions in United in United States fisheries, long predicted, are now underway. For example, in 2012, record ocean temperatures caused lobster catches in Maine to peak a month earlier than usual, and the distribution chain was unprepared. Number two, what's another key point here? It all ties together. The report suggests a different approach to assessing the effects of climate change by considering how various impacts on food supplies, water, and electricity generation, for example, interact with each other. This is according to the report. It says it is not possible to fully understand the implications of climate change on the United States without considering the interactions among sectors and their consequences. It gives several examples, including recent droughts in California and elsewhere, that in combination with population changes affect demand for water and energy. And that is the, you know, to use a cliche, one of the issues with what happened in California, a lot of the climate experts were saying it was a perfect storm. Again, that's the cliche. Uh, when it comes to population changes, when it comes to the drought, and the few times it has had rainfall over these past uh, seven or so years, and the few times they have had rainfall, all that really ended up doing was uh, growing the brush. So then it would stop. So it, it would rain for one, you know, whatever, uh, one little uh, moment. And then it would stop. The brush then forms. And next thing you know, the drought continues. So it created uh, the unbelievable um, 
arena for the fires to take place. So it's got the population, the droughts, a uh, little bit of rainfall, building up the brush. And so that really was a perfect storm. Uh, all right. Number three, beyond borders. The United States military is long taking climate change seriously, both for its potential impact on troops and infrastructure around the world and for its potential uh, to cause political instability in other countries. The report cites these international concerns, but goes far beyond the military. Climate change is already affecting American companies overseas, operations and supply chains, it says. And as these impacts worsen, it will take a toll on trade and the economy. Number four, Adaptation, adaptation, adaptation. Since 2014, more detailed economic research has estimated that climate change could cause hundreds of billions of dollars in annual damage as deadly heat waves, coastal flooding, and an increase in extreme weather take their toll. To limit that harm, communities will need to take steps uh, and prepare beforehand Because of this, more and more communities are taking measures such as preserving wetlands along the coast to act as buffers against the storm. But outside of a few places in Louisiana and Alaska, few coastal communities are rethinking their development uh, patterns in order to avoid the impacts from rising seas and severe weather uh, that the report says is surely coming. Uh, And another thing here is focus on air quality. The report notes this with high confidence that climate change will increase ozone levels as rising temperatures and changes uh, in the atmosphere continue. But the increase will not be uniform. By near the end of the century, the worst ozone levels will be found across a wide expanse of the Midwest and northern Great Plains. And I'm going to go into more detail next week on what's happening to the farmlands in the Midwest. Uh, Specifically, they are being devastated this is affecting everyone they don't care uh how much money you got they don't care what your sexual orientation is it doesn't matter what your age or your height or your weight um or your race uh this is affecting all of us so i climate change is something very real and uh, it's something that we're going to be dealing with um for a long time as um, what was predicted uh back a couple of years ago a decade ago 20 years ago is now uh coming to fruition and we're seeing it as we just saw again in california how brutal and uh, dangerous and scary it all is. Um, All right, everyone. Well, now it's time for an interview with Rachel Monroe. I hope you enjoy it. All right, joining me now, she is an author. She just recently profiled Damien Eccles in the New York Times. She is also a contributor to The New Yorker. I am honored to have with me Rachel Monroe. Thank you, Rachel, for being on the show. Thank you. Hi. (laughs) All right. So we got a lot to get to. First, we were just discussing uh, before we started recording what's going on right now regarding journalism. I want to get to Damien Eccles. I want to hear your thoughts on WM3. Um, But first, I just want to talk a little bit about what's going on right now with your profession. And before we started uh, the interview, you were talking about how sometimes when you go out in public and folks are like, what do you do for a living? Which is like the go-to first question in New York and I would assume all of Los Angeles as well, you oftentimes don't even tell them that you're a journalist. Why do you think that is right now? What's going on right now with the profession in general or people's perception of it? Well, you know, sometimes people shoot journalists. Ah, uh, yes, that, that's the problem. <laughs> that, that's, I guess, the big fear. Uh, but not an active fear that I have or anything. But, you know, I live in rural Texas. A lot of the places that I travel to for my work, I like to report on rural places in the Southwest. And uh, you just find out, you can tell very quickly that uh, the the feeling towards journalists isn't that positive. I was actually just at a motel in Utah the other day Mm. and the guy who at the motel room next to me 
had a Confederate flag, you know, the license plate bordery thing. Uh, so he had a he had Confederate flag border thing, and his license plate was his personalized license plate was fake news. You know, uh, like, I'm not going to tell that guy what I do for a living. He's going to break into my motel room. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, I think all of this stuff is coming from the top, right? Donald Trump's whole. Fake news rants, what happened with Jim Acosta, as I said before as well. I mean, I'm not a huge Jim Acosta fan, but at the same time, uh, as the judge that Trump appointed uh, agreed with, the man deserves his press credentials or his White House uh, credentials. Do you feel under this past, what has it been, about two years now? I know we're all age. I feel like it's been 30 years we've been living under this this guy uh, as president. Do you feel like it's gotten worse in your experience over these past two years, people being more vocal against your profession? Yeah, and I will notice that sometimes when when I do like admit that I'm a journalist, people will say things like, "Oh, you know, like almost as if that's a it's like you're saying that you're a a lawyer or oh. something terrible like that." <laughs> um, but I will say, I mean, mostly I think it's uh, entirely undeserved and frightening, and the free press is a cornerstone of democracy and everything. But I do think there's if I was gonna be a devil's advocate or something and find a, a like a smidgen of truth in any of it. I do feel like as a person who lives not in a big city on the coast, I can sometimes feel why people feel like the news media doesn't understand them or right, doesn't right. represent them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there's, there can be like a condescending or, or like frankly ignorant vibe. Totally. Um, occasionally, but that doesn't mean doesn't mean people should be. Uh, that means we should have more journalists. There should be a, a more journalists, not not less and not more incitation. Right. I completely agree. I mean, we travel all around this country and the world uh, doing our show, and I love going to the smaller places. We were just in uh, Dallas, in Austin. We were in Houston last year. Uh, Texas is absolutely gorgeous, but you go to places like Oklahoma City and you you go to smaller towns uh, in St. Louis or, or, you know, around St. Louis and you do get that vibe where people just feel as if the the mainstream media, I hate that that term at this point, um, but they do they do feel like there's a massive disconnect. So I understand some of the resentment regarding that. And, you know, as newsrooms get defunded and the smaller newspapers don't have the money to hire people and do the work, then people in Oklahoma City or wherever right. else aren't seeing the results of what journalism, the positive things that it can do in their lives. And so right. um, all they're seeing is talking heads on TV, you know, and yep. so I resent them. Kind of the clear channel effect, what happened with radio, where it was, now it's just all of radio in this country is four DJs in South Florida, and, they, and they're supposed to talk to the entire country. I completely agree. Um, thank you so much for your insights oh. on that. So you recently had a chance to profile Damian Eccles. Of course, Damian Eccles, he's out um, and uh, he's doing his book tour. And you also have a book coming out yourself. It is called, it's a true crime book. It's called Savage Appetites. Uh, can you tell me a little bit, what was the main interest? Why Why uh, did you choose, as far as, uh, as far as your journalistic focus, to be true crime? Was that because of the more recent boom or because uh, criminal justice reform perhaps has been something you've thought about in the past? Uh, why true crime now? Um, well, I'm lucky that the boom coincided, uh, although conflicted, because I think 
I have trouble with the booms too. Well, tell, oh, why? Why? Tell me about that because this is an interesting phenomenon. We were, I mean, Marcus, Henry, and I constantly t- discussed this. And as a matter of fact, we were talking about this in the in our uh, Peter Curtin series uh, before World War II in Germany. Obviously, the rise of of far right fascism. True crime was also a huge uh, component of their culture. It was a true crime boom. Everyone was uh, reading the salacious details of murder on a regular basis. Why do you think uh, true crime is so big right now? And, and what are your um, what makes you trepidatious about it? Well, uh, I feel like I should just say you just have to read my book. You know, I can't I can't sum it up. I wrote a whole book, but I think. Well, you got to read the book. Yes, <laughs> it's not out yet, so you can't. Okay. Um, I think I'm also. I'm also Particularly interested in why women are so interested in true crime. Right. That would be my main focus because if you if you think about it or you look at the statistics, the vast vast majority of murderers are men. Obviously, mm-hmm. the vast majority of murder victims are men. Most criminal prosecutors, criminal defense lawyers are all men. Um, homicide detectives are all men. But the people who consume the stories, I mean, I guess you guys accepted, tend to be overwhelmingly women. Mm-hmm. So I think that's weird and interesting well you know that's that's an interesting thing that you brought up because obviously uh you know marcus henry and i were just i'm from wisconsin we got a boy from texas uh henry coming out of i believe queens um you know we're not exactly um shannon tatum you know or is it shannon tatum i don't know but none of uh, the fact that our uh, channing oh that's a strange one okay channing tatum we're not exactly that um but we we were fascinated you know when we started doing last podcast on the left 2011 that there were so many women our audience is around 60 percent female and yeah you're right i mean for us that was a really eye-opening situation is there is there any component that you want to give us a little tease for your book savage appetites as to why um that is the phenomenon i mean one of my working theories is that there are a lot of uh big emotions maybe that women are socialized to not express you know things like rage or terror or just these kind of like big scary feelings and so these stories can be a way to talk about things while not exactly talking about them if that makes sense sure sure they can be like a kind of placement and um and i think that like women this is just it's terrible to do huge broad generalizations of course gender but i'm going to do it anyway okay I think there's there if you have been pervasively maybe discriminated against or exposed to injustice, mm-hmm. then um, you have your, your antenna up for those stories, right. um, and maybe you're not likely to um, go along with the popular conception given by the by the police or law enforcement. Absolutely, and you know, fucked fuck up psychology mm-hmm. is um, it's adaptive for women to understand this thing absolutely well let's talk a little bit about injustice obviously uh on this show we talk a lot about criminal justice reform the hundreds of thousands of people behind bars right now who are innocent uh, the innocence project it's really backed up uh and one of those people that was behind bars was a person that you covered did a profile on and of course we covered extensively in our west memphis three episodes damian eccles um tell me a little bit about your thoughts on damian eccles uh what was what was that profile experience like and what was it like uh, sitting down and speaking with him? Well, I had first, uh, like many people, seen Damien Eccles on the Paradise Lost documentary um, on HBO. I think I had just watched the first one before I came became aware of 
saw, I didn't watch the subsequent ones until much later. Okay. Um, and if you watch the document documentaries, you're just like, Oh God, this, this poor kid is in way over his head. Right. Um, and I actually had, for my book, had gotten close to his wife, Lori Davis, who was who fell in love with him while he was in prison, basically through those documentaries, right. and was instrumental to getting him out. So I write about her a lot in my book. Yeah, that's you know, let's let's focus on that for a second because as I was reading through his uh, biography, that love affair, and we didn't really get to it uh, on our episode because it's a it's not exactly a true crime, I suppose, but the love of Lori. For Damien was really remarkable. Moving out there to West Memphis, um, near near where he was incarcerated, leaving her family. Everyone's like, "You're crazy! What are you doing?" Um, what was that experience like? Uh, can you talk a little bit about just their love for each other and how she was able to save uh, his life in many ways? Because of her, they got Eddie Vedder on board. Because of her, they were able to really keep the legal momentum going. Uh, despite, of course, it taking 18 years. Yeah, so they have published a volume of their letters that they wrote back and forth, which are just insane. They're very dramatic and sexy and dark, and they're like a 19th century novel, Okay, but, but real, just this sort of forbidden love. And I remember reading that and being like, there's no way that these people can actually sustain this relationship right. outside of prison. And, you know, you hear about people who have prison romances and part of the appeal is that the person is unattainable, right? right? So you can just project your fantasies all over them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I remember reading that she got him out of prison. She played such a key role. She's a very modest person, so she doesn't get as much credit maybe as she deserves. Mm -hmm. But um, she and do you know who else was key uh, was Fran Walsh, who is married to Peter Jackson. Yeah. She is um, obviously like a screenwriter and director in her own right. So when they when they became involved in the case, she she was like obsessed with it. She's apparently a forensics obsessive. Okay, just in her spare time, and she would when they came onto the case, they didn't just donate money. They she would send. She paid for Lori to work on the case full time every day, and would send like twenty point instructions every day she's in new zealand time right so they wow. she, Lori would wake up every morning and be like here's here are my jobs from fran walsh to go oh you know find this talk talk to this person get this forensic test done i mean she just like directed the investigation which is amazing that is absolutely incredible there were so many heroes in that story and it's just one yeah. of those situations. I think we mentioned this when we covered uh, WM3, how Damien is the, or all three of them are the least lucky and most lucky, lucky people really around um, because there's so many people totally. right now without um, that kind of outside help and that kind of outside assistance and outside money and outside concern. So they're just sitting in cells right now, banging their heads against a wall, knowing that they're convicted of a, uh, of a, of a crime they didn't uh, commit. So is there any, like, what was your thoughts regarding how much work it took, despite the fact, you know, the DNA came back, the prosecutor in that case was just hell-bent, and the judge was just hell-bent on not having any blame placed on their shoulders, uh, hence the Alford plea, which I know Jason Baldwin, um, it's the bane of his existence. He says he regrets it on a daily basis, according to his social media anyway. And um, what what are your thoughts on how difficult it was, 
even though the evidence was in and it still took years after the evidence was received that these dudes didn't do this or definitely, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, um, they shouldn't have been convicted the way that they were. Uh, what are your thoughts on how long it took? And do you have any insight on, onto Lori's thoughts of that as well? Yeah, I mean, it took it took so long. It's crazy to think about. Um, and the case, if you look back at it, it has all of these hallmarks that we now know through the Innocence Project's right. research that are the the key points of um, wrongful conviction. You, you know, yeah, interrogating people like children, mm-hmm. right? People who are mm-hmm. under eighteen, um, false confessions, bad forensics, all that stuff is there. Uh, but I mean. What did somebody say? Like the like the American legal system is like a giant cruise ship and it just takes a really long time for it to turn around. Right, right. Um, and that is that's by design, right? So if you're ever in trouble, you even if you're you wanna make sure that you don't get convicted in the first place because getting a wrongful conviction overturned is just an incredibly laborious and difficult process. Right. I mean part of that is for a long time before Lloyd started getting really actively involved um, and all that funding came in, mm-hmm. they were working with public defenders and that's, you know, no shade on public defenders, but they are often really poorly paid, very overworked. They mm-hmm. don't have the resources to get a lot of the forensic testing, for example, right. um, to help people get out. And so that just makes things move really slowly. Right. Unless you ha- all of a sudden have, you know, millionaire celebrities funneling a bunch of money in and even then it takes so long even then it took 18 years and again there are hundreds of thousands of people without eddie vetter support and i'm not maligning eddie vetter in any way but there's just a lot i mean i thought what he did was great um but there are a lot of people out there um that we don't know and we don't know their names and uh and that's unfortunate hey guys today's top ad is brought to you by roof stock What if there was an investing platform that allowed you to collect passive income and generate averaged analyzed returns of 8% in markets across the U.S., not just the ones in your backyard? With Roofstock.com, you can buy, sell, and own investment properties the way pro investors do and start earning passive income right away. Everyone knows real estate is a great way to build personal wealth and diversify your investment portfolio, but it can be complicated. With Roofstock, you can invest in single-family homes across the country with as little as $20,000 down. Roofstock has made the whole process transparent and easy to engage. View inspection reports, take a 3D tour, see neighborhood ratings. And when you find a property you like, add it to your cart. It's as easy as buying a pair of shoes online. Roofstock offers a 30-day money-back guarantee, and if your vacant rental property doesn't have a tenant after 45 days of closing, Roofstock will pay your projected rental income for up to a year. This month only, they've got a special deal for our listeners. You will get a $500 credit towards your Roofstock Marketplace fee at roofstock.com slash top hat. That's roofstock.com, R-O-O-F-S-T-O-C-K dot com slash top hat for a $500 credit, but it's this month only. Roofstock.com slash top hat. How is your, what's your view now, uh, sitting down with Damien, talking with Lori, um, has that has that altered your view at all of what has to happen with criminal justice? When you talk to Lori, when you talk to Damien, do, do they share any insights with you on what they would like to see done as far as changes go to make it more humane, rational, and reasonable? 
Well, it's interesting talking to Damien because something that he will say a lot was that um, getting out of prison was just as traumatic as going in. Hmm. And that's how he'll say it, you know, not like almost as traumatic, but he'll say just as traumatic, which I think is so fascinating and and troubling. Um, And I think that is in part because, I mean, I write about this in the piece, but he, he was kept for the last decade or so of his sentence um, or the last decade before, before he was let out. Right. um, We was kept in in solitary confinement. Right. And that was not because he was bad, um, but because in Arkansas, they had built like many other States in the nineties, they got caught up in this tough on crime thing. Absolutely. That was, that was all age and um, built a super max prison all these states were doing this. It was a great thing for politicians uh, to do. Yep. It um, made them seem tough against the criminals yep. um, and was a way to you know, throw some prime contracts some people's way, I'm sure. Yep. And then in Arkansas, like in plenty of other states, they found out these supermax prisons are supposed to be punitive custody, right, for the worst of the worst. So if, okay. you, if you're in prison and that's not, you need like extra punishment, they'll send you to supermax. Um, but they didn't have enough people who were needing to go there. So, and meanwhile, the regular prison was overcrowded. So, um, in Arkansas and Ohio and some other States, they decided to move their death row prisoners there. Um, not because they had misbehaved or anything, but just because they had this shiny new prison that was sitting empty and that would otherwise seem like a boondoggle, the boondoggle that it is. Right. I mean, this is just, you know, it, it is when you when you say those things, it makes my heart break and my skin crawl. Core Civic, Geo Group. I mean, these corporations that make millions and millions and billions of dollars off of human suffering. What is uh, as far as I just want to hear your thoughts. Just I mean, as this, what does it say about us as a society where we have an entire corporation, a corporate structure, a financial structure that is based off of uh, human suffering? What does that I mean? How does that make you feel? You know, Ben, it makes me feel bad. Um, I would say that I think that the reason they were able to move these death row prisoners there is because essentially they were thinking of these people as disposable. Right. Um, And in a lot of cases, society does treat them that way. And you've been talking a lot about um, the, the people who are potentially wrongfully convicted who are still in prison. But in some ways, I think that the talk about innocence can be a kind of decoy. I mean, I don't mm. think anybody should be in those conditions. Right, right. Um, I, I think that uh, like supermax prisons, you're basically um, in, a, in solitary confinement in a cell with no windows. You can't see out. Right. There are all these ingenious ways that people have in prison of talking through the toilet pipes and stuff that they muffle all of that. It's just sadistic, basically. Right, it it's is, it is. keeping you... you even, you don't even have interactions with the guards, just like cutting people off from any human contact. And I just, like, I don't, I personally, personal opinion. I don't care what you did. I don't think the state should be doing that to anybody. I completely agree. So, and that's what makes that statement um, from Damien. So interesting where he said coming out of prison was just as shocking or just as traumatic as going in, what was like, why, why did you, did you get some insight of like why that was the case? Well, he's, he's such a like fascinating and remarkable person. He had, he had adapted to this 
terrible situation in a way. And then I think like unadapting becomes really hard. I mean, he had all of these and still struggles with these cognitive issues. Like he, his eyesight, so that's not cognitive, but that's just physical. I guess right. his eyesight had deteriorated in a really terrible way. Cause he wasn't, he wasn't seeing anything. Exactly. So his brain, that his eyeballs and his brain kind of atrophied. Ugh. He was telling me that he, he would, you know, he used to love movies, right? So he gets out of prison. He's like, let's go see a movie. And he would just immediately fall asleep within two or three minutes because his theory is that it was just total cognitive overload. His huh. brain just could not handle that stimulus. It right. hadn't had any stimulus. It's like when people are, it's like the Donner Party thing, right? When, uh, if you've been starving right. to death for for months and then you just, just like all of a sudden there's food and you scarf it down, then you die. You know, right. your body can't handle it. Um, he he couldn't recognize faces. He'd sort of lost the ability to recognize faces. Time was really weird for him. He, he was very stressed out about being alone. Just, he couldn't, he couldn't sleep. He couldn't keep a normal schedule. Um, This is something that you hear from a lot of people who, who get out of prison, just the adaptive strategies that work inside are not suited outside and then he's in this situation where you mentioned the Alfred plea you know these guys were let out of prison but they weren't because they were still technically guilty right they didn't get any compensation right. they couldn't sue the state so usually if, if it's a wrongful conviction at least there's like some token money or sometimes it's like a significant amount of money that people get to be like oops <laughs> like yeah, sorry exactly. about those decades but they didn't get any of that. And so he was put in this position where basically the only way he had to make any money be- was to go out and start, you know, telling his story and, right. and selling. And this is like a, what a, it's a fortunate position to be in, in a way, like you were saying, but also really terrible. He has to just go relive his trauma in front of audiences over and over again. Right. Um, to try to make enough money to live on. Absolutely. We're talking to Rachel Monroe. Uh, you got to get this book. When does this book come out? Savage Appetites. It's not out yet. But when it, when does it come out? August. I, I got to finish it. I got to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. We know the feeling. Marcus is currently oh uh, you know, at his desk, chained to his desk, uh, working as, as all of us work in our own unique ways. Um, that is so anyway. So Savage Appetites. Make sure to get that book when it comes out. So. What was it when it comes to um, when it comes to Damien? When it comes to uh, West Memphis Three? When you're talking about uh, you know uh, all of these things with him, did you get any insight into um, the other two? Right, because this is why I, I love Damien. I would I would love to speak with him. I know now he's doing his his tour and stuff, but it seems to me like Jason Baldwin, in a lot of ways, was one of the heroes of this case that doesn't necessarily get quite as much exposure. Um, but did you get any insight into their relationship? Are they still uh, friendly or is it, I mean, I mean, they had more time behind bars than they did uh, as friends. So what's their relationship like? Was there any insight into that? You know, I'm not sure. They, they like, I see on Instagram that they write nice things to each other. Um, but beyond that, I'm not sure. I, I texted briefly with Jason the other day. Um, he's doing incredible work. Like you were saying, he's got an organization. He lives in Austin now. Yep. He's got an organization called uh, Proclaim Justice that's doing wrongful conviction work. I know for a little while he was he was maybe hoping to go to law school. I don't know 
how that works exactly. Right. Um, but it's funny because they have reacted in such different ways. Damien really wants to put all that behind him. He told me, he was like, I don't, everybody thinks that time in my life, that case is so interesting. I don't think it's interesting at all. Right, of course. He just wants to do, he does this magic stuff. He just wants to look forward and do that. And um, Jason, yeah, has become this warrior for justice. Yep. You can kind of see it if you look back, if you watch the documentary again, in which he's like this twig of a kid. It's so, he just is a, a little baby, but you can tell he's got this, this little justice gene kind of yep. bubbling within him. Um, and it's it's cool that that's how he's turned out. It is. Yeah, he is doing amazing work. And if you get a chance, just follow him on Instagram and uh, and support the causes that he's working on. When it comes to Texas... And I should say, Jesse, uh, I think, is, is back in West Memphis. And, and nobody that I know is, is in touch with him. Okay, yeah, I think he maybe... We should, he left out, and I feel bad he shouldn't be left out. You know, I hope he's doing uh, absolutely. I hope he's doing great. Um, when it comes to Texas, we were just down there. Uh, what was it? It was it was Tuesday. It was the midterms a couple of Tuesdays ago. Um, it's and obviously we're watching the Beto uh, O'Rourke election versus Ted Cruz. Um, and the fact that it was so close for me was really encouraging in a lot of ways. When it comes to your state, uh, do you think that Texas? Uh, is becoming more of a purple state. Do you think that that's going to be able to hold just with your experience, just your personal experience there talking with friends uh, and just being around the community? You know, I hope so. And it was, it's, I agree with you. It was encouraging. Um, I remember I was here however many years ago when Wendy Davis was running for governor sure. and she was another person who, who seemed to have a lot of uh, energy behind her, at least if you went by like what was going on on Twitter. And then she, she just lost so hard. She lost by so much. Yeah. And that, um, that was uh, maybe a couple years after I'd moved to Texas. And I remember being really heartbroken be like, what have I done? Right. Why am I here in this stupid state? And, um, and the fact that that's so, so I had really steeled myself. I was like, he's going to just really go down in flames. But the fact that it was so close, it was, um, incredible. Do you feel like the tide? Because you know it's interesting. Um, I think that we're getting a lot more purple states and what were considered extremely red states before. Uh, and of course, the question is, does that hold, or you know, does it does it the the men- momentum swing back? But the Democrats were able to pick up more seats uh, than they did, or since uh, they picked up the more more seats uh, since uh, right after Watergate, after Nixon. Um, so they really were able to crush it out in this past cycle. Do you think that the people of Texas are, um, you know, just a little bit annoyed with what's going on, talking about how the media is out of touch, but do you think they're a little bit annoyed of what's going on when it comes to the executive, when it comes to Trump, when it comes to the administration? Or is that another thing that's uh, just not really discussed? Well, you know, it's a, it's a big state, so I don't want to speak for all of it. I know in my little corner of it, which is rural, um, tends to vote Democrat, predominantly Latino. Okay. Um, there is a strong sentiment against the president. But I mean, in Texas, the issue is it's getting people registered to vote and then getting them to vote. If the actual makeup of the state voted, then things would be really different. But Texas makes it really hard. I mean, I was registering people to vote this year. You have to, Texas is the only state. It's got these stupid rules. You have to get notarized. You have to pass a test. Right. Um, and, that, and then be notarized. And then you can only register people in your county. And if you want to register somebody in the next county over, 
you have to pass another test and they just make it really difficult to and so then texas ranks really low in the numbers of voter participation and stuff so I think that's it's going to be like the young people, right? And and well, I don't know. There's a lot I've seen. You know, as you travel around, you go to these airports. I see so many middle school kids wearing the MAGA hats. It's like it's kind of crazy. But then you think about like uh, a juvenile president, and you're like, I get it. If you're if you're 14 years old, you're like, this guy is pretty cool. It's like Cartman is president, and it really is. So I suppose uh, there's a little bit of a, when it comes to the youth, it can go either way. It's a double-edged sword, I think, in some ways. But you said that you had a um, large Latino community around you uh, in your rural area of Texas. Has there been a chilling effect, given the rhetoric and, of course, the actions of ICE, and now we see what's going on on the border? Um, Have you noticed anything in that community where they're they're feeling a little bit more tension, they're feeling a little bit more tense because of the policies that are being passed and proposed. You know, anything I would have to share would be anecdotal. I know there are some undocumented people in our community um, who are certainly feeling feeling nervous, but um, it's uh, it's that chilling effect of not even wanting to talk about it because talking about it brings attention. And, right. and so far, most of the ice rates have been in in more urban areas, so. <laughs> Nobody wants to invoke that. But, you know, we're like two hours away from Tornillo, which is where the tent cities are with the the kids. Mm. Um, it feels really, you know, for being out in the middle of nowhere, we're suddenly um, on some sort of front line. Right. Crazy. Well, I think that's one of the interesting things, specifically when it comes to the border. Uh, a lot of the people who live on the border, when it comes to like building the wall, all of this stuff, they're like, "Can you not take my property away?" It's a lot of times it's the people in Montana and Wyoming where they're like, "Build the wall," and it, people who are actually live on the border are like, "I like my backyard." Um, so, could you not build the wall? That would also be great. Yeah, and if if you talk to people around here who've been out here all of their lives and who have probably voted Republican their whole lives. They grew up with an open border, and especially in these rural, remote places, sometimes the closest city is in Mexico, and there was this free passage back and forth that people grew up with this free flow back and forth and, and are really nostalgic for that. Right. And I think the realities, the realities of the border are much more clear and nuanced to people down here than they are yeah, to people in Ohio who totally. have stupid ideas about, frankly. Well, you know, it's funny because... We always th- we always think about the border as like they're not coming in, but you're also not going out. And there are there is a lot as my friend, uh, as you know, Marcus, uh, being a Texas guy, uh, he he has uh, uh, echoed similar sentiment where it's like people used to just go to Mexico for the day, and it was like it's okay. And now, uh, obviously, yeah. given the tension, they're not. I mean, it's also it's very constrictive in a sense. Oh, totally. I mean, there are places where people used to just be able to walk right across. You could really literally wade across the river and go get some tacos. And now it's a four hour drive across the international border. And it's just these little towns have dried up. Right. It's a chilling effect on, on tourism, on, on families that exist on both sides. It's just, it's a real bummer. I mean, that feels like a facetious way to talk about <laughs> no, it. But, it um, you listen to People talk about the old days. Uh, it's really fun. We have this festival down here, which is really fun on Mother's Day that they started a few years ago. That's on the so the border right is in the middle of the river. So okay. there's, there's this part of the river where people gather on both sides of it. It's maybe like 20 feet across. And the first time they did it, so it's party on the Mexico side, party on the U.S. side. The dogs get into the water first. Border patrol is there watching. Okay. Then the little t- kids get 
water. The kids are, you know, walking back and forth across this international border in the river. Border Patrol is sort of like, what are we supposed to do? Oh, my gosh. And then by the end of the day, everybody's in the river just crossing back and forth like it used to be. And it kind of exposes the, the fiction of this, right. this border needing to be this, you know, insanely militarized thing. It's just you're just walking back and forth across the river. Totally. And militarized is the right word. As you were talking about that, it reminded me of South Korea and North Korea, the demilitarized zone. Uh, taking place there. Imagine if there was a party there. Uh, it seems very similar to the party that took place in the middle of uh, uh, the water um, between the nations, which I think is wonderful. Um, uh, lastly, I would thank you so much for doing this interview, by the way. Savage Appetites. Again, pick this book up. It's almost finished. And as soon as it is, you'll have to come back on and do an interview. Maybe you can come on our uh, last podcast, Patreon, and talk about it. And we can do a deep dive into all the true crimeness. Yeah. Which would be awesome. Well, uh, I want to talk a little bit just finally when it comes to the elections and when it comes to true crime, uh, the two biggest, um, I guess, uh, uh, actors in both of these phenomenons, specifically in the past midterms, were women. Uh, do you think that there is any correlation with what's going on now with women running for office? Uh, doing extremely well uh, uh, at that, not just running like Wendy, and we love Wendy, um, but, you know, obviously not able to pull it off. But women are actually winning, and they won in droves uh, in this past past midterm much, much more than they did. I think 94 was the previous year where they they called it like the the women's – the women's – uh, house or something like this, um, but they really trumped that. They they absolutely dominated that. And then the rise of true crime. Do you think that women are just now becoming more? Is is there any is there any correlation between those two things? Is there any you know the more that you learn about something, the more you have power over it. Uh, so perhaps there's you know this fascination with with true crime, and then uh, women fascinated with politics, and finally saying let's get involved. Is there any correlation there in your mind? I mean, possibly, but to be honest, to hear you say that, it makes me nervous. I think, I think a lot about the the '90s, um, a lot of the bad criminal justice policies that we have in place now that we're slowly starting to dismantle, like the three strikes laws or right. mandatory minimums or the way that juveniles are treated as adults. A lot of that came up in the '90s out of the victims' rights movement, which was this um, offshoot, and you could say maybe like Persian of the feminist movement um, to these right wing tough on crime ends. And mm. so um, I guess maybe it's just uh, personal cynicism where I've been researching this stuff too long, but um, you know, women are just as able to en- enact repressive policies as, as men are. And sometimes um, with a, you know, smiling pretty face well that is an absolutely fascinating point uh you know when it comes to you're, you're totally right i mean obviously it was it was uh the clinton administration three strikes all of these things uh, mandatory minimums uh the the tough on the tough on crime we have the war on drugs obviously in the 80s but the clintons uh well bill clinton specifically obviously uh, advocated for by hillary clinton really did push it forward isn't that fascinating why do you think that that is is it because when it comes to uh, good intentions. And of course, the cliche, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, all this kind of stuff. When it comes to criminal justice, why is it always punishment? You know, is that just something uh, as you've uh, researched true crime 
and just people in general, is that just something that's ingrained in us that we want to see other people suffer? The Germans call it schadenfreude. And that seems to be the cornerstone of our criminal justice system, not rehabilitation or trying to make these people better folks so they can come back and have jobs. Uh, they ju- we just want to see them punished and hurting. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it also stems from this sense that there is an us and a them and that there's a category called victims and there's a category called you know criminals or perpetrators. There's never any overlap and any rights that you give to one side are taken away from the other side and that, you know, I could never find myself, I'm, I, I'm a nice white lady, so I could never find myself on the other side of that line. And I think um, that in the, the worst thing that true crime can do is, um, the worst of its pleasures is making readers feel a kind of creepy satisfaction, but like feeling like they're good, right? I'm, mm. I'm the good one. They're the bad one and drawing that line. And I think if you um, look at how these policies actually um, are enacted, it's, it doesn't follow that narrative at all. But that's an appealing that's an appealing kind of story, that kind of black and white um, good guys, bad guys. Right, right. Drama. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for being on the show. Again, this is Rachel Monroe. Get her book. It's going to be out in August, Savage Appetites, and she's going to be back on while doing a Patreon interview. And uh, after we can thumb through the book and read a little bit, I'm sure we'll have some great questions. Uh, Well, I hope we have great questions. I'm not sure about it. I would hope so. but I cannot wait to speak to you again. Rachel Monroe, if you want to do, is there anything else you would like to, uh, to plug? Obviously, uh, check out her profile on Damian Eccles in the New York Times. Uh, read her in The New Yorker. Is there any other things that you're working on right now that you would like to tell the audience about? Um, I think nothing that I can talk about yet. Ooh. Find me on Twitter. I'm on-, at, on Twitter at R-A-C-H Monroe, M-O-N-R-O-E, Ratch Monroe. All right. Thank you so much for being on the show. (laughs) Ratch. Ratch Monroe. I love it. Thank you. All right. Well, Travis, thank you so much for being on the show, buddy. Woo. (laughs) You excited? Little Ric Flair. That's great. Um, Okay, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, We love you very much. We shall talk to you soon. Hail yourselves. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, Reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost.